Good morning, Church of the Good Shepherd. I was given a tough act to follow this morning, uh, but that was amazing. Uh, if we have not met, my name is Matt Mela. I serve as the RUF campus minister at Duke. Uh, so I'm just grateful to be with you this morning. It's a joy to partner with you both in ministry on campus at Duke and here in Durham and Chapel Hill. It's a joy to get to look at a passage in John 15 with you. We're going to be reading John 15 verses 1 through 17. So I invite you to turn there now. It's on page 901 in your pew Bible if you have that in front of you. We'll again be reading John 15 verses 1 through 17. Would you hear God's word? I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me now in pray, praying for it? Father, we thank you that you uh, don't leave us uh, to try to figure out who you are on our own, but that you have given us your word, uh, that you have given us here very powerful words from Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. God, I just ask that uh, you would meet us in a particular way so that we would experience the joy of your presence as we engage with your word. God, we thank you that you don't leave us alone to understand your word by ourselves, but you give us your Holy Spirit. And so I pray that your spirit would be active in our hearts, in our ears, in our minds, as we engage with your word. And I ask that by the power of your spirit, we might be different people as a result of having interacted with you this morning. Would you take anything I say that's unhelpful and move it out of the way? And would you speak clearly to your people? And again, Lord, would we be different as a result of encountering you this morning? 
Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word, for your spirit. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but this past year was the year of the Super Mario movie in the Mela household. Uh, I've seen it once or twice or ten times so far. Uh, and I'm really thankful, actually, that it came out when my kids were at an age that they were old enough to see it because it's allowed me to pretend that they're the reason I've seen it so much and not me. But since I just taught on the Ten Commandments and the importance of truth, I have to be honest before you, I love the Super Mario movie. It's been a great experience for me, and one of the themes that I love most about it is the way the characters stick together throughout the movie. So you've got Toad, the adorable little mushroom man, and yes, I did just in a sermon say the adorable little mushroom man, but he sticks with Princess Peach. He refuses to leave her side as she goes to face off with Bowser. In fact, you have Mario and Luigi, these brothers who are fighting to stick together throughout the entire movie in the midst of their challenges. What these characters have is they have staying power with each other. And this is really true of a lot of great stories. So we're going to transition and compare the Mario movie now to Lord of the Rings. And yes, I did that too. But what you see in there is you have Sam who refuses to leave Frodo's side. When Frodo tries to go, Sam says, I made a promise to stick with you. Or if you're more of a Harry Potter fan, you see those friendships stand the test of time. What these stories have in common is they have characters that stick together in the midst of life's challenges. This is a powerful reality of stories, and Jesus actually knows this well. Because over the last few weeks at CGS, we've been looking at what is known in John's gospel as the upper room discourse. John 13 through 17, these are the words that Jesus is sharing with his disciples the night before he is about to face the greatest challenge of his life, the agony of the cross. But it also presents some challenges for the disciples as well. You can hear it throughout the discourse. You can hear their sadness, their confusion, their fear even, because Jesus is saying things like, I am going somewhere, and I'm going somewhere that you cannot come. What Jesus has been saying throughout this whole time is that he is leaving them. And the hanging question for the disciples, I think, in this whole conversation is, does Jesus have staying power with us? Will he stick around with us? I think that question is relevant for us as well, to be asking, does he have staying power? But there's another question that this text also confronts us with, if we're honest, and it's this, do we have staying power with him? Will we stick around? Will we remain with him? That is at the heart of John 15. It comes right at the middle of this upper room discourse, and it unpacks a lot of the themes we've already seen up to this point. And it contains one of the most powerful commands that Jesus makes in all of Scripture when he says, Abide in me, and I in you. Remain in me, stick around with me, make your home in me, and I in you. This morning, what we're going to talk about is what it means to abide in Jesus. And if you're an outline person, we're going to organize that in three particular ways. The first is we're going to look at the need for abiding in Jesus, our need for abiding. Then we're going to talk about the means of abiding. How do we abide in Jesus? And finally, we're going to talk about the fruit that comes from abiding in Jesus. 
the need to abide, the means of abiding, and the fruit that comes as we do. So as we look first at our need for abiding in Jesus, it's helpful here to understand a little extra biblical context. In fact, oftentimes passages have a lot more depth and beauty when we see them in the scope of the whole story. So this is why Spencer this morning read those two passages from Isaiah. Because what those passages show us is that a common metaphor that God used to describe his people in scripture was as a vineyard and he as the vine dresser or the planter or the farmer. God has planted his people in order that they would bear fruit. They would be righteous. They would be just. That they would bless the nations around them. I have not shown a lot of aptitude for agriculture and farming in my life. In fact, plants usually die if they're in our home. But this past year, we planted a cucumber and a tomato plant and pots on our front patio. And I was extremely impressed with just how much work it takes in order for a cucumber and tomato plant to actually yield anything that's worth eating. I was equally impressed with my wife's efforts, Bethany, to actually tend and water and prune and care and research what it meant to do this well. She put lots of time into it. And what I learned is that agriculture, gardening, farming, it is a labor of love. When you plant something, you care about it. And the effort that you put in reveals that. And what God is saying in scripture when he describes his people as his vineyard is he's saying that I love these people. That I am willing to put in lots of effort into it. And you see that in that Isaiah passage. I have cared for this vineyard. I have planted it. I have sought for it to grow. But then the passage is honest about the bad news of the Old Testament, really the bad news of all of humanity. When it says in Isaiah 5, 2, I looked for it to yield grapes, and it yielded wild grapes. Spencer highlighted this, wild grapes is a friendly, polite translation. It most likely means stinky grapes or rotten grapes, to just get the sense of how honest God is being about the state of his people. You see, for the people of God, the law of God is like the trellis that he has planted lovingly so that we follow it, that we might grow and bear fruit. But the story of humanity is people saying, I'm going to do it my own way, rejecting God's way, rejecting his law, forsaking the gardener, and therefore failing to bear the fruit that God made us to bear. Now, Isaiah also has whispers In that other passage, Isaiah 27, this vineyard will be replanted. It will bear fruit. And so what we see as we come to John 15, 1, is that there is a huge theological punch to Jesus' statement, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. What Jesus is saying is that everything that humanity was intended to be, I am. Everything that God's people were supposed to be, I have done. And in fact, interestingly enough, though the Bible claims that Jesus is God in the flesh, one of the ways he most powerfully pictures what it means to be human is his complete and utter dependence upon his Father. Just like a vine requires the careful pruning and tending and watering of the vine dresser, Jesus has lived his life in complete and utter dependence upon God. He has willingly submitted himself to his father's words. He's demonstrated his dependence by praying regularly. He has kept all of his commandments. 
He has pursued every person that God has given him to pursue. He is picturing for us the human need to abide in God. And he does it perfectly. But what's amazing about Jesus is he's not only the perfect man who abides in his father, but he is also the perfect God in whom we are invited to abide. He somehow can do both of those at the same time. So as we get to the fifth verse of this chapter, which depending on your vantage point can either be a source of great comfort or perhaps the most offensive thing that scripture has to say in all of its pages, he can say, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, Jesus, you can do nothing. I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me, otherwise you can do nothing. What Jesus is saying, what he's confronting us with is that to be human is to depend completely upon him, to abide in him. I was thinking about this phrase, do nothing. And again, that seems kind of striking. There's lots of people out there in the world that seem to do all sorts of things apart from having a relationship with Jesus. And my study Bible tried to make a distinction between these things. It said, well, of course it doesn't mean nothing at all. It just means nothing of eternal value or significance like bearing spiritual fruit. But I actually think that's too much of a false dichotomy. Because I think we as human beings are far more dependent upon Jesus every waking moment than we even realize or acknowledge. After all, it says that he upholds the very universe by the word of his power. We are dependent upon Jesus to get out of bed in the morning, to breathe, to do anything really as he upholds the world. Even if we don't always realize or acknowledge this. I was talking to one of my good friends from college just this past week, and he was telling me about a particular meltdown that his young son had had. Perhaps you can start to relate to this story. But his son was watching TV, and his mother came into the room and said, it's time to stop watching television. And what did the son do? But he railed against this unjust rule that his mother was trying to enforce for him, even getting to the point of beginning to want to attack his mother. And in the process of doing this, he actually interrupted the fact that she was making him lunch. Is that relatable at all to any parents in the room? As we were lamenting this and actually trying to laugh a little bit about the craziness of it, he reminded himself and me of something that was super helpful. The way he could have compassion on his son, even in that moment, was to say that this is exactly how we treat God. We resist or rail against his laws. We sometimes neglect him or complain against him, all while he is keeping us alive every minute of the day. He is providing for our needs. He is caring for us tenderly. You see, we have a human need to abide in Jesus because without Jesus, we really can't do anything. He has perfectly fulfilled all that we were meant to fulfill. What this passage is showing us is both his humanity and his divinity. As I said, he is both the man who completely depended upon God and the God on whom we are to completely depend. He's been saying all throughout John, I can do nothing apart from my father. I need my father. That's why Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, can strikingly say that Jesus somehow was the most dependent human being who ever lived, even as he was God in the flesh. 
But at the same time, he is the God on whom we can depend because he was able as the true vine to completely and perfectly fulfill God's law. He is, in fact, the most fruitful man who ever lived, which is why he's a perfect substitute for us. Because the story of the gospel is that although Jesus was perfectly fruitful, he let himself be uprooted, trampled upon, thrown into the fire and burned so that we who depend on him in faith can be replanted. He let himself be thrown away like a fruitless branch and dealt with all of God's wrath on the cross so that as we come to him, we might be replanted and pruned and grow. The reason why apart from me, you can do nothing is tremendously good news is because the entire scope of Jesus's life and ministry is such that we never have to be apart from him. That is why he came in the first place. He has come to prove God's promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. Even as he goes away to the cross, he promised last week that he would send his very spirit to dwell with his people forever. This guide, this counselor, this advocate, this helper to be with us forever. You see, because Jesus was burned up in our place, we can know as we abide in him through faith that we have the secure favor of God's presence with us forever. What sealed the deal is that Jesus wasn't just burned, but he rose from the dead, a statement that was known, a thing that was known as the first fruits of new life. You see, Jesus is proving definitively that the God of the Bible has staying power with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. What he's saying is you need to abide in me because I am the proof that God will never stop abiding with you. You need to stick with me because I am demonstrating to you that God will never stop sticking with you. You can do nothing apart from me, but the good news is because of Jesus, we never are. We need to stick around with him. It's what we were made for. But what are the means of abiding? How do we do it? How do we stick with Jesus? We need to, but how do we do it? Well, we looked in our confession of faith and we looked again in slightly fancy language. Interestingly enough, that was actually the modern translation and it still was kind of funky. But it talked about these outward and ordinary ways that we partake in the benefits of redemption. The outward and ordinary ways that we receive God's grace. And you actually see in this passage that Jesus is highlighting those similar things as a way that we abide in him. Look at verse 3 with me. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Later in verse 16, just to hammer the point home again, he says, whatever you ask in my father's name, he will give to you. Word and prayer. Now, there's also something else happening in this passage, and John's gospel doesn't mention it. But we know from the other gospels that it is this very night that Jesus actually institutes the Lord's Supper for his, his followers. In fact, when he talks about having a new commandment, theologian scholars see this as a picture of the new covenant 
that Jesus is forming in his blood. And so we actually don't just see word and prayer, but we see worship and sacrament in here as well. You see, what Jesus is saying is that the way that you abide in me, it's not a secret. It's not some sort of fancy method. It's receiving and abiding in my words. It is speaking back those words in prayer. It is eating those words, as Spencer said, as we are reminded of what Jesus did at the Lord's table. In RUF, we've been talking about how we grow for our leaders in grace, how we grow in our relationship with God. It's another way of just asking the question, how do we abide in Jesus? And I came across this really helpful illustration for growth in the Christian life. This author I read compared it to sailing. And what he said is that when you sail, you are wholly dependent upon the wind to go anywhere. Without the wind, you cannot move. Well, interestingly enough, the word Holy Spirit in Greek and Hebrew can also mean wind. In fact, Jesus compares the Holy Spirit to wind when he talks to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You see, he's promised his Holy Spirit and he's saying, I'm going to give you the wind. I'm going to give you the engine that is going to drive your Christian life, your abiding in me. But just like anybody who's good at sailing, which I am not, I've capsized boats a couple times and that's about it. I hope that's not a picture of my own Christian life. But just like sailing, you can do things that help you catch the wind. You can position the sails. You can move them in such a direction that it is more likely that they be filled with that wind. That's how Jesus' words work. They're moving the sail so that we can catch the wind. That is how prayer works. That is how worship and sacrament works. We are dependent upon the promised Holy Spirit, but we can participate in moving the sails to catch the wind. So I want you to see, even in this passage, how Jesus' words might actually fuel our abiding in him. Just look at some of the things he says to his disciples. You are already clean. Can you just think about where this is happening and what's about to happen with his disciples in the moments after this? They are about to run away from Jesus, lock themselves in a room. Peter is going to pretend that he doesn't even know Jesus. When Jesus is praying in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, they fall asleep. Talk about a lack of staying power, a lack of sticking with him. But Jesus has said, you are already clean. What he is telling them is that our relationship with Jesus is not based upon our sticking power with him, but his with us. Or how about this one? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Don't jump past that. What Jesus is saying is as a perfect eternal father has loved a perfect eternal son through all of eternity, that is the way that he loves you. A son who has never messed up from a father who cannot mess up either. And he says, that is the love that I have for you. Again, think about who he's saying this to. His disciples right before they abandon him. Or how about this one? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And just for good measure, he says, you are my friends. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. Do you remember back in John 13, 
when Peter said to Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you? Well, when Peter was confronted with the opportunity, he bailed. Instead of choosing greater love, he chose greater self-protection. He chose friendship with the world over friendship with Jesus. And yet Jesus still graciously and lovingly calls him his friend. And what this, is, what this is saying to us is that our friendship with God is not dependent upon our laying down our lives for him, but him laying down his life for us. The whole story of the gospel is that if we come to Jesus in our need, he will have laid down his life for you. What this means is that there is no greater love that exists out there than the love that Jesus has for you. And just for good measure, how about this one? Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus' abiding with us isn't even dependent upon our ability to choose him, but his choice of us first and foremost. Do you see how if we abide with those words... If we stick with them, if we let them sink into our hearts more and more, they will draw us more deeply in to Jesus. I'm sure after the disciples were confronted with their failure after the cross, the Holy Spirit reminded them of Jesus' tender words to them in the upper room. When we fail which we will, we need to be reminded of these words. This is why we engage with God's word over and over and over again. The same Holy Spirit that was promised to them is the same spirit that is promised to us. This helper to draw us more deeply in to Jesus. And as we draw more deeply into Jesus, we actually get drawn more deeply into what Jesus is about. I again want you to look at our verse where it talks about abiding in Jesus' words, verse 7. If you abide in me and, I, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Do you see how abiding in Jesus' words actually reshapes our prayers? To make us desire not just self-focused things, but Jesus and kingdom-focused things. That as we engage with the truth of who Jesus is, he actually reshapes what we get excited about. And what Jesus gets excited about is fruit. Fruit that abides. And so we're going to transition to our last point here of the fruit of abiding in Jesus. As we engage with these means of word and spirit and sacrament through prayer, how does Jesus produce fruit in us? What is he talking about? Because after all, that's the whole point of this, this metaphor. Whoever abides in me, he is the one that produces fruit. I chose you so that you would go and produce fruit. So what is he talking about? Well, I think that Jesus makes an interesting connection here between fruit and joy and love. Fruit and joy and love. I want you to look at verse 11 with me. This is a really important and powerful verse to me because it pushes back against this idea that following Jesus is about drudgery. It's about simply being obedient and doing what he says. What following Jesus is about is about joy. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The fruit of abiding in Jesus is joy. 
his joy being in us to the full. Well, what is the source of Jesus' joy? I think it must be the love relationship that he has had within the Trinity for all of eternity. That from the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, Father, Son, and Spirit have existed in perfect love for one another. That is the source of Jesus' joy. And what he is saying in this is that he is inviting us into the joy of eternal love. He is inviting us into friendship with God. Not a God who puts up with us, tolerates us, begrudgingly welcomes us, but a God who welcomes us all the way in. The source of his joy is the internal love relationship that has always existed. And the reality is I'm only beginning to grasp the joy that is found there. That when we come in prayer and before God's word and in worship, we are coming to a God who welcomes us fully into eternal love. In fact, this is why Jesus came. It's for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. The joy of welcoming us into a perfect eternal relationship with God himself. The joy of the cross, it was worth it to him to spare us from God's wrath so we could enter into his love. So what this means is that it's not just the joy that we experience as we enter into God's presence, but the joy that also comes when we invite other people into that presence as well. The joy that comes when we invite other people in to this kind of love relationship that God has made us for. Have you ever been close to a conversion before? been close by when you watch somebody come to faith in Jesus. I was sitting out there in one of the pews one Sunday morning when I received a text from a student who I've been praying for and meeting with for years. And I'm about to out myself that I checked my phone during church. I'm sorry for whoever was preaching that Sunday. But I happened to look down at this text message and read from this student as he told me that he had finally embraced the gospel that he was looking forward to living a life pleasing to Jesus as he abided in him. And man, if I would tell you how that changed my experience of worship that morning, to see that God is in the business of moving people from death to life, that he is in the business of moving people from alienation from God to friendship with him. It was clear to me because I tried for years to reason that it was the spirit of God that rescued this guy. But there was a tremendous amount of joy in knowing that he had invited me into that process. That he used my words and my effort to invite this person into new life in him. Elsewhere in the Gospels, what Jesus says is there is a joy-filled party thrown in heaven when one lost sheep is found. And he invites us to have that party with him, to enter into that joy. You see, the fruit that God called Israel to bear all the way back when, and the fruit that he invites us to bear now, is that we would see other people enter into the joy of knowing this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This Savior who would lay down his life for his friends. 
And there is a tremendous amount of joy that comes when we see that God is in the business of doing that very thing. Don't you want a taste of that joy as you see God rescue lives? It is this that reshapes obeying his commandments from drudgery to true joy. It is this that shapes loving one another as he has loved us from a burden to bear to a joy we get to experience. Because when we do that, when we love the way he has loved, we experience more of the love that he has for us. We enter more into the reality of what he has done. But we also get to be used by him through his spirit to invite others in to that joy. That's why Jesus can talk about there being a connection between obeying his commandments and experiencing joy. When he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you, he's not saying that our commandment keeping is the basis of our friendship. Jesus has aced the exam in our place and he has invited us all the way in. What he is saying is that Obeying his commands to love is what characterizes us as his friends. That the way that we show that we are his friends is when we begin to love as he has loved. And the only real true motivation to love as he has loved is when we experience the way that he has done that for us. The joy of laying down his life so that we might be entering into eternal love is the same joy we get as we invite others into it. That's how commands move from drudgery to joy. When we were in London this past spring break, a missionary used a really helpful illustration as we were getting to go out to do evangelism in the streets of London. And he said that what we were doing was the ultimate child going with their father to take, you know, take your children to work day. That God is actually in the business of saving lives and as a child would be excited to go to work with their father to see what he does, to experience his presence. As we go out into the world to share who he is, we are going with a father who loves us. We are going with a father who wants to give us joy as we enter more deeply into that. Loving others is hard. The standard is incredibly high. Love as I have loved you. But it will be worth it because of the joy that comes on the other side of it. So the invitation for us as a church is to move more deeply into Jesus. And as we do, to move more deeply toward one another. To love the people in here and the people out there. Because I think when Jesus says he wants our joy to be full... What he means is he wants the full complement of people who he has called to enter into his love. His joy is a full humanity who has come to him. And we are invited in to that joy. It's why he chooses us. So we can bear fruit that will last. John 15 tells us that Jesus has staying power with us. His whole life his death, his resurrection, are designed to prove that. It was necessary that he went away from the cross to the cross because that's what it took to bring us to him. So we need to abide. It's what we're made for. But we have his spirit. We're not alone. He will enable us through engaging with his words, through prayer, through sacrament, 
his words and our prayers, his sacraments and our worship to draw us more deeply into him. And in abiding, we will experience the fruit of that joy. The joy of entering into his presence and inviting others into it as well. One of the most powerful parts of John's gospel, uh, Jesus says some particularly hard things and some of his disciples go away. And he looks at the 12, now 11 in this room, and he says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter, with the help of the Spirit, says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, somehow, imperfectly, not fully getting it, Peter knew that Jesus had staying power. And so amidst the obstacles, he stuck with him, knowing that Jesus would stick with them. So we are invited to embrace to whom else shall we go? He has the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that not only do you confront us with our need, but in the very same passage, you provide for that need. You confront us with this reality that is hard to embrace, that apart from you, we can do nothing. God, does that challenge our pride? But at the same time, it comforts our despair to know that the very reason for Jesus' life was so that we would never be apart from you. God, I really do truly pray that we in here would experience the joy. Perhaps just one takeaway would be to simply reflect on the reality that you invite us all the way in to experience the joy that has always existed in the perfect relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. Would that thought just blow our minds today? And we, as we engage with your word and prayer and worship, would you give us a taste of the joy that we will have perfectly for all of eternity? And God, I just pray that you would use our words, our efforts, as imperfect as they are, to invite other people into that joy. And I pray that partially through the work of this church, that there would be full joy on earth as more and more abiders come in to the presence of the living God. Lord, we need you. We can't do it apart from you. But thanks to your spirit, thanks to your death and resurrection, we are never apart from you. So Lord, help us abide, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.